0: Hey everybody, welcome to Pit Stops to Podium, the Rev Partners podcast where we talk to execs who have competed at one, selling their companies from high growth to high scale. My name is Brendan Tollison, the co-founder and CEO of Rev Partners. I have with me today Karen Walker for episode one of Pit Stops to Podium. And I'm very, very excited uh, to have this conversation with her because, well, Karen is an expert. Uh, Karen uh, got her career uh, started at Compaq. Uh, Karen got to witness uh, Extraordinary growth. And in fact, Compaq was the fastest company to ever reach a billion dollars. Karen was employee number 104 and saw it go all the way to 17,000 employees to 15 billion in revenue. So she has a few things to share on this topic. And since then, Karen has been a fantastic resource to multiple companies in the technology space to help them understand how to make this transition from high growth to high scale. So with that, Karen, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, friend, and I'm really honored to be your inaugural guest. And, uh, and yes, the compact experience was, uh, was quite something, and I learned a lot uh, both in terms of things to do and things not to do during those 14 years.
0: Well, we're fortunate to learn more about your experience, but before we get into the big idea for today, uh, let's go through some fun facts about Karen that you may, may not know. So if you are a Friday Night Lights fan, uh, Karen is from Odessa, Texas. Uh, so if you ever have any questions on what happened, Feel, feel free to reach out to her. Second, Karen is a snowbird. Uh, so she will be up north uh, during the summers uh, and down south uh, during the winters. Uh, and then lastly, don't mistake Karen's soft tone. She is tough, but she is a great person and a great friend. And we're, we're thrilled to have her. Uh, Karen, one, one quick thing what, as we kind of transition. What's a hobby that you've been able to pick up during this interesting time that we uh, we're all experiencing in COVID?
1: Right. So what am I doing with the time that I am not on airplanes now? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I did put some thought into this. I think most of us did in, you know, last March of 2020. What am I going to do with this time? Uh, And I started reading fiction again, Um, actually um, historical fiction and a lot of um, biographical uh, works. I typically only have time for nine nonfiction. And I say fiction for vacations because if I start a good book, I want to finish it which might be 2 or 3 a.m., and that's not very conducive to a work week. Uh, but I read a lot of European history. Uh, I was good in math and science in high school and college, and so that's what my courses were. And uh, there's just a lot I never got exposed to. So I read Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and Louis Fourteenth and uh, King Charles of Sweden, and um, I can also answer questions now on, uh, on European history.
0: It's great. It's a much better use of your time than what I have done. So I oh, no. I oh, commend you you. tell. <laughs> <laughs> I probably spent more time watching Hulu shows and Netflix shows on European <laughs> history than I did actually reading about it. So <laughs> <laughs> congratulations. <That> counts <laughs> for some of it. Yeah. There's a, a show called Elizabeth, I think, or Catherine the Great. That was a, a, a fun. Um, okay. So Karen, let's transition into the big topic for today. And so I think you're a perfect um, person to have this conversation. And the question is, as you are a you know fast growing technology company, you know the first one of those foundation blocks is to understand your product market fit. But but once that's established, what's next? Now what do you do?
1: Yeah, so product market hurdle is a big one, and uh, congrats to to the listeners who have who have found that. Um, but my my experience is that the, the next hurdle is how do we execute on really delivering to this promise that we made to our customers. And uh, it is the thing where we get in our own way a lot. Um, Certainly, uh, we saw that at Compaq, uh, you know, that that amazing story. We did $111 million in our first year. And, of course, had we known we were going to do $111 million in our first year, we could have planned for that. uh, But we didn't know. And so it was just like, um, you know, you just got up every morning and did as much as you could do uh, and went to bed knowing there was an even bigger hill in front of you the next day. And I think that's what happens once you find your product market fit. Um, you, you need to deliver. You need to be aligned internally. Uh, you need to have strategies to make sure that you maintain that alignment. Uh, and you need to have teams that work. Uh, the way that work is done in the 21st century is primarily through teams. And uh, what it takes to be a good team member, uh, they're not the same skills as being a great individual contributor. And most of us don't come out of the womb knowing how to do that. Um, so I think uh, that is the place where we really have to pay attention. And if I think about RevOps, um, you know, what a what a great um, part of the organization. Uh, great examples here around the need for teams because it's so cross-functional. I think in the same ways that we've had the rise of the chief revenue officer, uh, RevOps is you know is in many ways following the same path that we have to have realignment between sales, CS, and marketing in order for the organization to live into its potential.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. And one of the things that you you just talked about was that whole concept of misalignment between yes. external and internal. Uh, and when we talk a little bit about that, let's unpack that a bit more because you talked a little bit about good teams. How how What is a good team in your mind? And how, how does that drive that alignment concept to ensure that execution uh, is done well?
1: Yeah, so I like to use a, a sh- short definition by two guys, Kotzebock and Smith, who wrote a, a book and an HBR article called The Wisdom of Teams and the Discipline of Teams. Uh, and it's it, so these brief components, it's, it's, a, it's a small group. So if you have 50 people, it's not really a team. You know, you can call them my team, but they can't really function as a team. They're into group dynamics at that point. Um, so a small group of people with complementary skills. So if you all do exactly the same thing the same way, great. You can get things done, but you're not working as a team. Uh, You have to have a common purpose. What are you trying to do with the team? You have to have um, um, a a way that you hold yourselves mutually accountable. And by that, I mean, it's not just the boss holding you accountable. The team actually holds itself accountable. So if um, I don't bring to the party what I said I was going to bring, I don't deliver on time, uh, you're expecting something from me you didn't get, it's okay to ask me about it. And my responsibility in that team is to respond in a non-defensive way, hopefully to get in front of and to own why I did or didn't do what I said I would do, um, but that it's all in the, in the, it's about reaching this common purpose, this common goal for the team. So I actually like to start with worst teams before I move to best teams. Uh, and when I'm, I'm giving talks or, or working with, uh, with organizations, I'll, I'll ask the people in the room to think about, you know, sort of what was the worst team that you were ever on? Uh, and then to think about what were the behaviors that made that team so bad. And so maybe the listeners could do that uh, here for just a couple seconds. What was the absolute worst team you were on? Um, I've never had anyone in thousands and thousands of people I've worked with fail to come up with a bad team. Uh, And the kinds of things that um, that I hear, you know, after we've we've thought about it, thought about what made it so bad, I ask people, you know, why was it so bad? And um, I tend to hear things like, you know, um, we had groupthink. We didn't know how to deal with conflict, and so we just all you know, sort of passed over the conflict, and we all um, wouldn't challenge one another. Or uh, we had debate by loudest voice, right? The loudest voice in the room always gets their way. Or uh, we didn't have the skills and resources we need, right? We were, ch- we were chartered poorly in terms of our membership. Or the goals and priorities of the people on the team weren't aligned, Right, So we come from different departments, perhaps to a team. We had different different things we're trying to accomplish. Maybe we had really weak leadership um, where uh, we were unable to get the things we needed from the rest of the organization. Or uh, one of my personal favorites is when people say, oh, we started using the flywheel or some variation on that. And that that concept is uh, you know, sort of one we often see in, in bigger companies and small companies, as they grow, sometimes adopt it. Um, you know, So a flywheel is something that gets going, and you sort of put a little bit of energy into it to keep it going. Uh, and I think bad teams function that way, right? They get just enough done to keep the wheel going, uh, but not enough for anyone uh, to really work at their potential. Uh, and the thing about bad teams is your A players do not want to work on them. They will see that team as a tar pit and the teams can only work at the level of the lowest-performing member on the team. Mm-hmm. And so when your A players feel dragged down or unable, uh, you know that they have to dumb down in some ways in order to work on that team, they will head for the exits, and that's not a situation that you want to be in. Um, so there, there are all kinds of signs for bad teams, um, but um, if we turn now our attention to good teams, which is the place that we want to be, um, I also ask people to think about was the best team that you were on, and and often it's a sports team for people. Some of us were really lucky to be on great teams. You know, I was on a high performing team at Compact, which is the only reason we were able to accomplish the things we did. Uh, but for many people, there's sports teams or uh, places where there's just such good camaraderie on the team, uh, and that um, people's egos were out of the way. Uh, you had complementary skills. Um, you respect your teammates, right? You have to have. You have to have a talented group of people, and you respect their skills. Uh, you assume good intent when someone does something you don't understand. It's, you're not cynical about it. You assume that they did it because they had a good reason, and then you get curious, and you go figure out what that reason was. Uh, you have good conflict resolution skills, and those you resolve conflicts in the way that's, that fits the situation rather than just having a hammer and a nail and always resolving conflict the same way. Uh, You have explicit responsibilities, but it's okay to color outside the lines to get things done. Uh, Nobody thinks you're making a grab for their territory if you do something that needs to get done. Uh, You have this clear definition of goals. You know, what is it we're trying to do? How will we know when we get there? This is such a common issue in organizations that um, people don't know what success looks like. You just keep doing and doing and doing, and you never know when you get to the finish line. And I think it's incumbent on on all leaders and managers and organizations to make sure it's clear for individuals and teams, what that, where that goal line is. Um, Or maybe there's no accountability structure, right? We know that from an, from an accountability structure standpoint, they're more effective when they are mutual accountability, as I mentioned earlier in terms of the team definition, Um, but individual accountability, which is awesome. It's part of why we we've been successful in the past, right? We rate great individual contributors because we hold ourselves accountable and we get things done, that can be a little fragile when you have competing priorities and you can't get everything done. But if you have some mutual accountability structure where other people are helping you hold yourself accountable, uh, then you have a much greater chance of success, and uh, the best teams have that. Um, If I go back to Kotzenbach and Smith for a minute, uh, we think about the team performance curve, right? So as a team works together, they build social capital together, they have history um, they have worked out, you know, the complementary skills, they've got everything just right. Uh, the thing that's a real difference in a, in a good team and a high-performing team um, is pretty simple, but something we don't think about very often, and that is you have to care about the, the success of your teammates, care about the success of your colleagues. That does not mean you have to get beer with them. It's great to go get beer with your with your teammates, right? That, that camaraderie is uh, is priceless and certainly something we are all missing these days. Uh, but if you care about the success of your teammates, if you think about it, that's really aligning your best self-interest with their best self-interest. We all do things in our own best self-interest, but if you can align those two things, uh, then there's a lot of, of power there. And when I mean care about the success of your teammates, you know, if if the team is charted correctly, the team can't be successful unless everyone is successful. And so if if you're successful, right, you've maximized for your talents or maximized for your part of the organization, but some other part is lagging and you're not helping with that or supporting that or making the changes that need to happen for that to change, then then you don't care about their success. You're not optimizing for the team. You're maximizing for one, um, and that, that will not lead to high performance.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. One thing's you talked about is the – the performance of the overall team, it will, it will go to the lowest common denominator, which is the lowest performing member. And so that makes a lot of sense in terms of how you're describing yeah. um, that dynamic. But some of the things that you just outlined in terms of uh, what a high performing team looks like. Uh, yeah. That's not easy. <laughs> and so <No. laughs> and so how and it doesn't necessarily come natural to most. And sure, for, for some it does. But uh, if you were to provide some encouragement or, hey, here's some behaviors um, for the audience to say, um, as you think about how to go from good to great, or as you think about how to take your team, who may be bad today, but it doesn't mean they can't be great or good. Uh, what are some of the things, proactive steps that you've seen be successful for other companies uh, that our audience can take away with them after this call?
1: Terrific. Yeah. So I think about uh, good to great is a terrific phrase. Um, I think about it's up and to the right. Um, I'm a, I think in two by two matrices for some reason, and um, I'm always trying to get us into that upper right-hand quadrant. Um, Yeah. So I would say there are four or five things you could really pay attention to in terms of making a difference in the organization around execution. One is just make sure that you value process as well as content, because it is not enough just to get stuff done. How it gets done is important. Um, and you have to value sort of disciplined process in the organization. And I would say nowhere is that more important than in rev ops, right? You are you are built on disciplined process. Um, there's also sort of no substitute for making sure that the organization understands the intentions behind whatever the goals are that you've set. And the, they're making 10,000 decisions every day that hopefully will not involve you because you have other things to be doing. And so the more clarity everyone has about why they're doing what they're doing, uh, the better they'll be able to make sure that there's alignment between their actions and the intention. Um, I think there is, um, it's important for everyone in the organization to be vigilant and to watch for dumbing down, right? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to work today and we're gonna dumb down this team, <laughs> right, or dumb down this organization. It might feel like that sometimes. Uh, but I think we have to pay attention. So when we start to see dumbing down creeping in, when um, we start to see um, organization becoming less effective than it has been, um, pay attention um, so that you know. And if your organization is like straining instead of scaling, uh, people are actively disengaged, you're having a lot of unplanned turnover, right? Big warning signs. Um, I think you should also ask for what you want and notice what you get. This is one of my favorite phrases in life. Too often we assume that other people know or should know what we want. Uh, well, they don't. And uh, there's no reason to keep them guessing. So ask for what you want and then notice what you get in response. If you're not getting what you want, then you have choices to make, right, about what you can do, what you can do about that. Um, and then reward the behaviors that you want in the organization, right? We we know that... that As I mentioned earlier, people do things aligned with their best self-interest. And so if you're rewarding behaviors, those are going to be the self-interest behaviors that you get. Um, Know that rewards come in many different flavors, right? We often think of compensation, which is great, Um, but also you can increase the recognition that you're giving to employees. Uh, You can find ways to show them that you trust them. You can give them more responsibility. Um, make sure that you reward behaviors that are not just technical skills. As I mentioned earlier, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. Um, that is so important in a scaling organization because we end up, I think Peter Singe famously said, if you reward fires, you get got a lot of firefighters. So um, good to have people that have the ability to put out fires in the organization, but don't encourage that behavior because um, then you'll end up with more fires than you needed to have. And then lastly, I think it's important, particularly for the leadership in the organization, to sort of walk the talk. I've certainly had experience where organizations were going through change and the leadership would say, we're going to do X from here forward, and and the behavior of the leader was not aligned with what they said. And that will both instill cynicism in the organization, but will not get you the behaviors that you're looking for. So make sure that your own behaviors are really consistent and aligned with your intentions.
0: Like that, uh, yes. When, or summarize at least what I was hearing was: pay attention to the tension. Uh, what's rewarded is repeated, um, and the indi- the idea of you know integrity and accountability. Don't ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do, and so lead by example as the executive. Um, well, Karen, I, I really appreciate uh, these incredible insights based on your experience about the compact and the companies that you've helped along the way. Uh, how can Uh, our audience get to know you better? What are ways in which they can engage with you to continue to learn these actual insights uh, as they move forward?
1: Oh, thanks for asking, Brandon. So um, a couple of easy ways. My website is just karenwalker.us. And then on any social media platform, I'm at karenwalker.us. So I think those are the, the two easiest ways to reach me.
0: All right, Karen. Well, thank you so much. We really do appreciate your time. And thanks for sharing your perspective on our podcast.
1: Thanks and take good care, Brendan.